Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today, the episode is brought to you by the Eating Disorder Therapist Book Club. So this month we're reading Amy Harmon's Perfectly Imperfect, Compassionate Strategies to Cultivate a Positive Body Image. So if you're interested in joining the book club, what you get is four extra podcast episodes a month, a Facebook group to gain support and encouragement, although you don't have to join that if you kind of prefer to be just listen to the podcast episodes and be a bit more on the edge of it, that's completely fine too. Um, yeah, so you get this extra support, encouragement and motivation along your recovery journey. It's not therapy or a replacement for therapy, but it's a therapeutic intervention that can really just help you as you're trying to recover from disordered eating and improve your body image. So if you're a bit unsure if you want to join, you can dip your toe in the water first by hearing the first episode for free on the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. So that's about two episodes back from this one. If you listen to that, it gives you a bit of a taster about what the book club involves. And then if you like it, you can sign up in the show notes. And what happens is you pay five pounds or the equivalent of seven USA dollars a month for access to the extra episodes, the Facebook group and all those goodies. So I really hope to see many more of you there. Now today I have another guest on the show and I'm speaking to Jacqueline Davis. So Jacqueline is the Binge Breakers podcast host, bulimia recovery coach, artist and loving dog mum. After recovering from bulimia by focusing on habit and mindset change, she now helps others to do the same through her groundbreaking programs. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to Jacqueline today to explore her personal recovery story and her journey to becoming a recovery coach. So I was also recently a guest on Jacqueline's podcast. So do go and check this out. It's linked in the show notes. So I'm so looking forward to speaking to Jacqueline today. Let's get to the episode. Hi, Jacqueline, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Harriet. So Jacqueline, could you introduce yourself, please, to the listeners? Yeah, sure. So I am the podcast host of Binge Breakers. It's all about like bulimia recovery. I struggled with bulimia for around four years and disordered eating for long before that. And then after recovering in kind of a non-conventional way, I really wanted to help other people. So I'm now a coach as well. I help people through bulimia recovery. And yeah, other than that, I'm a dog mom. I like fitness and I walk my dog a lot and I do some art. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you for for introducing yourself. And and what kind of dog do you have? He's a Labrador mix. He's kind of a butt, but he's mainly a a black lab. Oh, lovely. Oh, I love Labradors. And they have a great temperament, don't they, you Labradors? Yeah, he's a real shy one. And he also doesn't like water, which is just (laughs) terrible because he's a lab. So, but we're working on it. We're trying to get him more comfortable with water. But it's so so funny because usually Labradors love water. Oh gosh, so like a bit of exposure, like kind of sticking his paw in maybe to start with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we've gotten him to get in the ocean, but he only will go in if you give him lots of treats, then he's willing to do it. But otherwise he will never get in on his own accord. 
sure. Oh gosh, how funny. Oh well, good luck mm-hmm. with getting him in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Jacqueline, obviously like you've struggled with bulimia yourself, but you said before that you struggled for disordered with a disordered eating for sort of some mm-hmm. years before that. So yeah, would you mind sort of taking us back a little bit and just tell us like what was your relationship with food kind of like as a little girl and you know, what stage did your eating become more disordered? Yeah. So You know, as a child, I think I was fairly normal. There were things in my life that I didn't really realize may have contributed to my eating disorder. But, you know, my mom was never one of those people that's like, you have to clean your plate. She didn't comment on what I ate or anything like that. And there wasn't any talk about, like, it was a relatively normal, healthy relationship with food most of the way. And I was an athlete. I ate a lot of food. It wasn't until high school that I I had switched schools, which, you know, at the time didn't seem like a big deal, but I really left all of my friends that I had known since kindergarten and went to a new school. And that was my it was my freshman year of high school when my first bout of disordered eating kind of came into play. And it first started with just like really restrictive dieting and counting calories. And I think as I think back to it, it was partly because at the time my body was changing a little bit. It was going through, you know, puberty and all that sort of stuff. And I think I just got uncomfortable with like suddenly seeing seeing cellulite on my legs. And I also have been swimming. I was a swimmer for a long time and then my high school didn't have swimming. So of course, when you stop a physical activity like that, my body just changed. And so I think all of that combined, plus like having a new friend group, I think I started to really want to get validation and just have something to focus on. So I started getting really obsessed with calories. And I guess when I'm thinking, when you say your story out loud, you're like, oh, and there's this and there's this. But I also, you know, I always got appreciation for, this sounds weird, but for my looks, it wasn't like my parents would scold me if I didn't look a certain way. But at the same time, it seems like there was a lot of value put on the way I looked. And therefore I felt like I needed to uphold that. And so I think that contributed to it as well. But I did actually receive therapy for what was going on because it developed into bulimia. I started like binging at night. It was kind of hard to remember because it was a long time ago, but I started binging at night mainly. And I was like obsessively counting calories during the day. A lot of my friends knew something was wrong. They didn't know what to do. And then eventually my mom kind of found out over the summer that something wasn't, wasn't quite right. And I confessed to them and they got me in therapy. And I don't remember much about that because it really quickly after getting therapy, I just, it just kind of stopped. I don't know if it's because I felt more comfortable with my friend group and I realized it wasn't really that smart to be doing what I was doing, but it, it kind of quickly went away. Mm. But as time went on, I went back into like, you know, all of high school went on. And then during my college experience, I started the first year of my college like experience trying to lose weight. Cause again, I went through a phase where I went to a new place and I didn't really know anyone. It was a, wasn't a traditional college experience either. I wasn't in a dorm. I was in my own apartment. And so I started to get into training and fitness, which is a good thing. But then I started getting a lot more obsessed with weight loss and thinking I needed to lose just a few pounds. And my whole college experience was really tainted with the idea of I need to lose weight. And it was always like at first it worked really well. And then I would gain it back. And then I would lose it and I would gain it back. And I, this is where I'd say it really got quite disordered because I really struggled. I started struggling with bulimia again in my senior year of college. But when I looking back, there were so many weird things I was doing. Like I was, I would try not to eat for 24 hours and then I would 
just break down and binge after work or something like that and think it was normal. And I wouldn't have told anyone what what I was doing. And I did, I had forgotten about this, but I remembered it a few months ago, but I did attempt to throw up like before in my sophomore year of college, but it didn't work. So I just moved on and like, that's a huge red flag. Right. But Mm. I didn't, I didn't think anything of it because I didn't purge. Therefore there's not an issue. And I was turning on social events for that. I was really isolating myself quite a bit, but then something changed. I decided to get involved in an exchange program in my school. And I went with three other American students to Manchester, England, which was the time of my life. I spent a whole year there and really, really enjoyed it. And it was, I was so thankful because I was with three people all of a sudden. And when you Mm. are with people, they kind of can help you realize some of the behaviors that you have that aren't so normal. And Mm. so that was kind of a blessing in disguise. I didn't realize it. And also we were traveling a lot. And while I was still, I had a gym membership over there. I would go to the gym all the time, which was a good thing in a lot of ways. It offered me kind of comfort when I was, you know, all alone in some ways in a foreign country, but I was able to forget a little bit about the weight loss. I didn't have access to a scale. There was a weird period. My roommates remember where I didn't really realize it was strange, but I was just like only eating protein powder for my meals. And I didn't, you know, again, I didn't pick up on the fact that that's not okay. Something's wrong. But of course, you know, no one, my roommates didn't really know what to say or how to handle it. But thankfully, apparently I started eating normal food again. So it wasn't a big deal. And then eventually, I feel like I'm rambling a lot, but eventually came home and what had happened through all that travel, me not having access to a scale and kind of like loosening the reins for the most part on weight loss. I had gained a lot of weight that I didn't realize I had gained. And I looked, you know, I I was at my heaviest that I'd ever been in my life. And so that summer I came home and I was like, this is it. I need to change something. I need to lose weight. This has got to be the final straw. And before then, of course, I was, something was wrong. If you just looked back at my whole college experience, like this is not okay. But then my thoughts started to turn really nasty towards myself. Like something made a switch. And I don't know if it's because of the weight I had gained or something, but I started to say things that I would never say to any of my loved ones of like, you know, you're disgusting. How could you get to this point? How could you let yourself go like this? You're kind of a waste of space, like all these sorts of things. And this was my senior year of college. So I think I felt a lot of pressure. I really wasn't happy in the degree that I was in, even though there were a lot of good things from it. I didn't know what I needed to do or what I wanted to do. And so I think all of that combined was causing me a lot of stress. But anyway, I started another diet and it went normally at first. But what happened was as time went on, I started to get more restrictive because I wasn't losing weight as fast as I desired. So I started cutting my calories back and cutting it back and to the point where I was eating, you know, like 400 to 800 calories a day, not good at all, obviously. And I was just so obsessed and I was cranky all the time by one of my roommates from England. She moved in with me for a senior year and she was just like, yeah, you were a real piece of work that time of year because I was just eating, you know, nothing and cranky. And it, it got to the point where for Christmas break, I opted to just go home for a few days and then stay at my apartment the rest of the time because I knew I had a long break and I could just isolate myself. And all I could, all I need to do was go to the gym, then come back home, eat the small meal that I would have, and then just, you know, work out and that sort of stuff and watch Netflix. Like that's all I would do. And so it really, it got pretty bad. 
And then I, I don't know how much detail I guess you want me to share, but eventually what happened was I had a day where I was only a few weeks out from my goal weight, but I felt I had had some sort of food in my house. I think it was like these Thinsters cookies or whatever, and this really low calorie ice cream. And I don't know why I had them in the house because at that point I was scared of food. I really didn't keep things like that in my house anymore because I was so worried that I would lose control. That's It was just like, I keep it out of the kitchen. But I ate some of that and I was just so hungry that I binged on it. And then I the fear of gaining weight back because I had yo-yo dieted so many times. I was like, I've done so much work. I can't let this happen again. I can't go back to that place. And so I tried to purge one last time and it actually worked for some reason. I don't know why up until this point. But then I just remember sitting there in the bathroom thinking like, what have I done? This is ridiculous. I'm too old for this, all these sorts of things. And then I you know, vowed this is never going to happen again and no one can know. And that was another big thing for me. I was like, I can't tell anyone. I don't know why exactly I thought that, but I just didn't want to bother anyone. So anyway, I like, you know, made sure there's no evidence. And then of course, things got progressively worse from there. So that's kind of where everything or- originated is that... Is that explain it well enough? Mm, yeah, no, I mean, like, thank you for sharing. And, you know, if it's okay, but I can just pick up on a few things, actually, just from your story, because I think I'm sure mm-hmm. so many people listening will relate to different aspects and, you know, just quite quite helpful just to sort of talk through some of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what I'm just really struck by as well is, like, you know, just going right back to like I guess the like earlier days like before it was perhaps you know full-on bulimia or anything but I just think some mm-hmm. of the things that you were talking about you know are quite common triggers for people not just struggling with eating disorders but maybe with mental health generally so mm-hmm. like you're saying in a way like the switching school like at the time it didn't seem such a big deal but it it could be a huge thing can't it when you're kind of moving away from your friends yeah. and at that kind of quite vulnerable age where it's so important to feel that you're fitting in and you're kind of part of a social group. It's quite a big transition, isn't it? Changing schools. Mm-hmm. And I was just so shy from when I was a toddler, I was super shy. I would like hold an elbow out in front of my face. So no one would talk to me like no strangers. <laughs> so mm. me a really shy person going into a new high school together, even though I was really excited, it really was a strange transition and a big transition. And if you feel like you didn't fit in or felt like anything was wrong with you, you can start doing some strange things to cope and, you know, eating disorders and just like calorie counting and weight loss in general, that can become a really great distraction for you and kind of your own relationship in itself. So you don't have to worry about other things. And yeah, you're right. I didn't put it together at the time, but now looking back reflectively, it probably was a really huge trigger for me. Mm, yeah, no, definitely. I think I think just what you're sort of saying there as well, that kind of distraction and something to really focus on. Because I think as well at that age, even if you're not aware of it or have the kind of vocabulary for it or kind of awareness, like just feeling accepted, feeling part of a friendship group, feeling liked is just, it's kind of almost a bit crucial for survival, I think, isn't it, in adolescence? Mm -hmm. And if you perhaps feel a little bit on shaky ground with some of that, it's so seductive, I think, to feel like, oh, well, if I, you know, control my food, maybe change how I look, I'm going to feel better. Mm -hmm. Sadly, you know, the culture can reinforce that as well, can't it? Well, people gave me attention for doing what I was doing. It wasn't necessarily good attention, but people were concerned. They would ask me things. Also, I wasn't, you know, super popular, but people did know something about me. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess when I was in high school, I did take confidence from that, that, you know, oh, people know that I am disregimented and all that sort of stuff and that I, I have this problem. And I guess I took some sort of confidence from that when I didn't have much confidence about anything else. Yeah, and it's sure. I suppose it sounds like it was almost a little bit of a kind of identity, wasn't it, as well? Like, yeah, something that you had, something that you were sort of known a bit for that made you a bit different or interesting even. Absolutely, yeah. And it was a small high school. So, and I've, you're right, a lot of listeners out there can probably relate. I've heard people tell me similar stories of, you know, that's, this is what, well, I have one person on my podcast and she said, I became known as that girl. And even though looking back, it's so sad, that was my identity, like you're saying. Mm, Sure. Yeah. No, I think many people will relate to that. What I'm really interested as well is like just this whole thing about when you stop swimming as well. Cause I think as well, like obviously exercise generally playing sports at school it can be so incredibly positive for mental health and physical health and well-being but I think again it can be I just think of some of the people that I've worked with that like maybe danced for years and then suddenly stopped and you know I think if you've done Mm -hmm. a lot of exercise intensively it can be quite an adjustment can't it when your body suddenly does kind of catch up a bit almost with your peers when you stop exercising as much Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just not only does when you're in a when you're in a sport, especially as a kid or, or as an adult, it gives you a sense of community again, and it gives yeah. you some goal to work towards and part of your identity. But it also, yeah, your body's used to a certain level of activity, and then of course, it, it wasn't even. It's not always that your body changes for the worse or something. It's just your body mm. looks different because you're not doing yeah. what you're doing regularly. So it just adapts and. That's what happened to me. And I think that whole combination was a lot more toxic than I realized. And it was mm. it was hard to deal with, even though I didn't really realize why it was hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, sure. And it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing I wanted to pick up on as well is just this thing about kind of, you know, you being very appreciated for your looks. And, you know, I guess in a way, people that did that around you, I'm sure were doing it with like kind of great intentions. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. it's, just a sort of normal thing isn't it that we kind of do in our culture in a way that you know if we see that someone's attractive or we we kind of like how they look often compliments would just very easily flow won't they but it's you know I think people sometimes think obviously it's incredibly detrimental to someone's self-worth if they've had a lot of negative comments about their appearance or just negative comments generally but it's also quite interesting isn't it because I think also it's the flip side and actually you know sometimes we can think that by praising someone for how they look can be really really helpful but I guess you know your example just says to firsthand how that isn't always as helpful and it again perhaps it does it feel a bit like a pressure sometimes or like you like you said having to uphold it Mm -hmm. yeah it wasn't and it sounds you know I feel weird saying out loud but that is what happened I did get a lot of compliments whether Mm. I don't know it's just it's a strange thing to say but I got a lot of compliments, particularly from my family and relatives. It was the first thing that they would say to me. And that's just because it's an easy thing to comment on someone's looks. But mm. yeah, it did feel like this pressure. And I didn't get a lot of compliments for my academic work. I didn't get a lot of compliments on my personality. I got compliments on my artwork and I got compliments on how I looked. And, you know, it wasn't always bad. Some people would say, you know, you're so nice, that sort of stuff. But that became what was really important to me. And I always, I even remember thinking as a kid, when I grow up, what's important to me is, 
you know, being beautiful and having an amazing career. And as long as I have those things, that's it. And obviously, you know, as you grow up and get older, it's a lot more complicated than that. And that's not the only things you should work towards. But yeah, and it can have a detrimental effect either way. And what you say to people really does matter. And if you only compliment them on that, they're going to think something's majorly wrong if you stop complimenting them or, Mm. you know, that's what they thrive on. And I think I thrived a lot on external validation. And sometimes I still can struggle with that. So. Sure. And I thank you for sharing. I think, you know, just really valuable for people just to reflect on that. So Jacqueline, as well, what I'm really struck by is, you know, when you went on to talk about some of your other experiences and how your eating, the eating disorder developed is just almost like the sense of isolation that you felt at the different stages. Um, You know, it sounds like as well that you almost your world became very small, didn't it? Very sort of insular. You know, you must have been quite alone, but just very preoccupied, I guess, with food and exercise and almost a bit in a sort of little bubble almost, you know, and quite isolated from other things in the world that were going on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's been funny because I went through all of this and I've really uncovered a lot through working and having, you know, my coaching business and having the podcast. When people ask me things, I'm like, oh yeah, that does make sense because you don't think about your journey as often. But I really was isolated. And p- part of that's because I'm just a shy person naturally. So instead of going into a college experience where they kind of college almost helps you make friends in a lot of ways, they put you in a dorm, they have orientation week, there's lots of events. I went to a small private arts college. And while that was a really good thing, it was just not a great thing for a person like me because I could easily just withdraw and go back to my apartment. And then my first roommate situation that I had, I did have a roommate in my first apartment, but we were in such separate age groups that we didn't get along very well. And there was part of the time where she was just gone. So we weren't really good friends. I didn't have any solid friendships till I went to England with those roommates. And I'm really thankful for that because that was that was really bonding. But most of the time I really was just, I would go to a few friend things. I would sometimes put myself out there, but I would say probably at least 70% of the time I was just alone. And saying that it does feel really sad because that really was the case, but no one was there to really tell me that something's up, something's wrong. And that's the problem is with eating disorders, you can justify so many things and you can start doing things and not realize that what you're doing isn't normal. And then it just keeps escalating. And it's sometimes helpful to ask yourself, you know, why wouldn't I tell someone about this? You know, if someone else saw this, would they question it? But even during that time, I didn't even really realize there was a problem. I just thought this is my life and this is okay. Mm, Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I think it's hard to see the wood for the trees, isn't it? And you sort of almost become Mm -hmm. in a tighter and tighter sort of spiral or like, I don't know, like this kind of spinning hamster wheel where you almost like you haven't even got time probably to get off the wheel for a minute because you're thinking about your next workout, your next meal or your next whatever Mm -hmm. you've got to do. It's just kind of, yeah, you kind of just like lose perspective, don't you really? But you don't realize you've lost perspective. You're just kind of so in it. That's a perfect term for it. Yeah, I'd completely lost perspective. And especially those are crucial years when you're trying to figure out what am I as an adult? Who who am I? Who do I want to be? And so it developed into something that really wasn't very helpful at all, for sure. Mm, Yeah, no, sure. No, it's tough time, isn't it? I think that kind of emerging adulthood from sort of like, you know, your late teens to your sort of early to mid 20s, you know, obviously, like, I just think back to my own experience, like, 
so many fun, amazing things happen, but also some really down times too. And it's quite hard, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's quite hard growing up, I think. And, you know, putting yourself out there in the world and all the kind of pressures and almost kind of all the different choices and opportunities, it can just feel really, really overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a time where you, you see everyone go to college and you think like it's this this formal path they're supposed to follow and everyone figures it out. And as a teen, you think, oh, you go to college, you get a job and that's that. But a lot of times that's not how it works out. Sometimes you go to college, you don't like your major, you don't even know what you're doing and it's really messy. And Mm -hmm. I guess I wasn't necessarily prepared for it like most people are. And so my bulimia, when I was struggling, you know, I told you about the the lead up to it, but then after I was struggling with bulimia in my early twenties, I really felt like it was just a mid twenties crisis altogether, just crazy floundering, like trying to figure out what I wanted to even do in my life. And bulimia really served as that identity while I was trying to figure it out. Mm, yeah, no, sure. What just struck me as well, Jacqueline, is that year when you did come to over here to the UK and Manchester mm-hmm. and just the fact that being around other people ended up being a real positive for you in that year, didn't it? And like, in terms of being able to just kind of perhaps, I don't know, just having that kind of feedback from others, maybe that more support and encouragement and just not being so isolated. Yeah. Well, and I still, my dad got me a gym membership there because he thought, you know, she likes fitness and he he thought he was doing me a good thing. And he was, there's a lot of benefits to exercise, but I was still there. I was still kind of, you know, like obsessive with certain things. And my roommate, the female roommate, she was, she ate a lot less than me. So I'd always compare myself to her and all this other stuff. But the thing that was so helpful is they went out and did stuff and they brought me along with them, you know, and they also like, when I wanted to withdraw and retreat, they would knock on my door and be like, Hey, Jacqueline, want to watch a movie? And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So they really, kept forcing me out of my shell and kept giving me opportunities to get out of my shell. And that was just so beneficial because it left less room for the eating disorder to come in. Yeah, and sure. And I think just such a powerful message really for anyone listening, isn't it? Because I think when we're in the depth of an eating disorder, like the last thing you feel like doing is being sociable, isn't it? And talking to people mm-hmm. and getting out there. But actually when you do it, sometimes it can be the most beneficial thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really can. If you can, you can have someone in your life to force you to do that. That's amazing. But when you are in that space, it's kind of like when you want to go for a run or something and you don't really want to do it. And then you kind of push yourself to go for it. And then you feel grateful afterwards. You kind of have to get into that mindset. But yeah, when you're in your eating disorder, you don't feel like doing it at all. You don't feel like going out and you have all these thoughts in your head that are convincing you to stay. So they, they really, at the time, forced me to just bypass that altogether and hang out with them, which I didn't realize was probably incredibly beneficial. Mm, yeah, they sure. Friendships just so important. So Jacqueline, for you as well, with, with kind of like re- recovery and like, cause it sounds like maybe some of your recovery kind of happened a bit, just like with kind of circumstances changing and, and you know, growing up a bit becoming just a bit more sure of yourself and but what do you think what are some of the main things that really helped you kind of properly recover from bulimia and get out of the kind of real depths of that kind of low place yeah well you know at my worst because after that kind of scene where I I binged on those cookies I struggled with for with about like four years so I after that I moved to be with my partner out in Colorado. We have been dating since like senior year of high school. And so I made the switch there. 
And that helped to just have someone to live with, even though it didn't make everything better. And at some points I got worse, just having someone there. Eventually I told him a year after we had moved in together, just because I knew that I needed help. I knew that it wasn't going to go away on its own. At least that's my thought. And I was just like, you know, I need to figure out how to talk to someone. And there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. If, if I'm just like sneaking around, it's going to be strange. I'm already sneaking around to binge all the time. So I really need to, t- to tell him. And I also felt, you know, extremely scared and guilty. I felt like I was lying to him, all these sorts of things. And obviously when I told him, he didn't think any of these things, he was just supportive and kind and everything. But telling someone, anyone, I think is one of the biggest steps in recovery because when you keep it all in your head, you kind of feel crazy. And I had made up all these stories about myself that weren't true. And just telling one person, even though I didn't recover till years later, really helped me get perspective again, as you were saying, because he didn't say, oh my goodness, you're this crazy person. You're this monster. You're this liar. He just thought, oh yeah, you have a problem and we should get help for that. It was very calm and collected. So that's probably one of the first things. And then the big thing I did which is kind of hilarious, is the whole time I was struggling with bulimia, I was trying to recover. I unfortunately couldn't afford therapy at the time. I didn't have insurance. So I just felt like I was out of luck. But the whole time I was trying to recover, I was also simultaneously trying to lose weight and and trying to look up weight loss advice. I never, ever looked up how to change your mindset, how to work on your mental health. It was only about you know, kind of weight loss tactics and how to recover from bulimia. And even that, I don't think I looked hard enough for the how to recover from bulimia because now that I'm recovered, there's so there's a plethora of information out there. But you know, at the time I was just so laser focused. Thankfully though, I stumbled across a podcast that talked about weight loss, but they also talked about changing your mindset and how you talk to yourself and and habits. And I was like, oh, there's a huge piece of the puzzle that I'm missing. And it's that I'm treating myself horribly. I'm saying horrible things mm-hmm. to myself all the time. I'm not, you know, I'm just kind of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the, the biggest thing I did outside of telling someone was actually trying to work on treating myself with respect and kindness and shutting down those thoughts in my head. And that's sometimes easier said than done. Depends on where you're at. I definitely had depression throughout that, but Thankfully, I was able to pull myself out of it with just really focusing on how my mind was working and actually trying to focus on positive things to say about myself and changing over time. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I invested in coaching for myself just, and it wasn't even, this is the hilarious part. It wasn't even for bulimia because there wasn't anything like that. It was just for general life coaching, Mm -hmm. but I started working on my life and I started kind of working on how to change, you know, my career. I really was struggling my relationship. I wasn't really showing up in it at all. So how to change that sort of thing. I started kind of focusing on other areas instead of just bulimia and weight loss. And that helped expand my life. I think you talked about this in my podcast, but it helped me see that, oh, there's hope. There's things that there's things that goes on here. There's more to life than just losing weight and, you know, making money. And that really helps me start to pick up the pieces And then lastly, what kind of nailed the coffin for me and bulimia recovery is that, you know, I was honest with my boyfriend about what was going on. And I also was really investing in my mental health at that point. And I was really working hard on treating myself kindly and with respect. Then I kind of gave up weight loss. And then I realized bulimia for me was very habitual. There was this whole habit cycle that was going on with my binging and purging. It happened every day at the same time. It was always because of these certain triggers. So I started to look at bulimia as a habit. And then I was able to actually quite easily 
cut binging and purging and, and stop it all together. So yeah, a lot of things went in there to, to recover, but that's kind of a synopsis of it. Yeah, no, sure. Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing. And I think mm-hmm. I've just spoken to like, I just think of several of my clients who I've worked with over the years have been suffering from bulimia and in a relationship and, you know, have kept it from their partner for, you know, years mm-hmm. sometimes. And th- I think it's sometimes then it can also become or almost become it becomes such a shameful secret and they kind of feel like, oh my goodness, I've been keeping it secret for so long. You know, if I said anything now, it's going to just be terrible and, you know, it's going to destroy mm-hmm. the relationship. They and feel like think, a liar, like they're betraying mm, their partner or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sure. Well, it's, it's awful, isn't it? It's like having like a double life, really, if you, you know, even mm-hmm. living with someone and they don't know. But I think what's just really helpful is you, sh- you sharing how you did speak to your partner then. And actually, that was such a helpful thing to do, being open and honest and, and actually to get some support as well through mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And I was really fortunate that he, sometimes people can have really adverse responses. They're not very nice at all. And I was blessed that he was very kind and receptive. And he also gave me space. He wasn't like, lurking over my shoulder all the time to make sure I was doing what I said I was going to be doing, which was helpful. He kind of had healthy boundaries with me from the get-go and he just was there when I needed him. And then sometimes he would also point out abnormalities going on with me. Like I remember one time we were having a conversation and he was just, he kind of said like, you're doing better on the whole bulimia thing. Right. And I laughed and I was like, oh, you know, it's only like once or twice a week right now. And he was like, what, you know? And, And I said, oh, it's not that bad. And he goes, no, that's, that's not good, Jacqueline. And it kind of brought me back into reality again. So that was, it was so beneficial, but yeah, I, I had all the same drama that your, your clients have had where it's, I think that I'm betraying them and bulimia kind of is like a secret relationship. So you do feel like you're running around with almost like someone else, but you're not. And I would tell those people, you know, it's kind of all in your head. I think if you, if you got to think, if someone were to come up to you and tell you the same thing, you would probably respond with a lot of compassion and love. And mm. your partner probably cares about you really deeply and they care about you just getting better, especially if you came to them and were just honest with them. It'll probably be okay. Mm. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. And I guess it's, mm. you know, like you're highlighting really, you know, hopefully for most people, it, it would be a really positive experience. But I guess it's just worth mm-hmm. reflecting a little bit ahead as well you know you, you know you're wanting to speak to someone aren't you who you know generally is an accepting kind supportive person and it sounds like what was really great helpful with your partner as well is that you were able to have some kind of healthy boundaries there because I think mm-hmm. there is nothing worse is there than like if you'd felt like he was breathing down your neck or something that would have been really really tricky if you felt like really watched and observed all the time yeah. And that happens. I have a, one of my clients that that's a struggle with her partner and he kind of can amplify the situation and make her feel even worse, you know, if she is doing those things. And it's kind of like, you don't need that extra pressure. You're already trying to recover from something. You'd also don't need the extra pressure from someone else. At least I don't think it's very beneficial. So sometimes it's helpful if you can, obviously, like you said, make sure the person that you're talking to is accepting and and loving, you know, is that you feel safe talking to this person and you trust them. But then it's also maybe helpful if you're going to tell someone to actually tell them what you think you need. And you obviously can't control another person. They're going to do whatever they want. But if you, you lay out the expectations that might be helpful for them because sometimes people, they don't know how to respond. So it might Mm. be helpful for you to tell them what you need. 
yeah I think such a great point actually because I think yeah a lot of people understandably really like don't really understand eating disorders I think if you haven't experienced one yourself or if you haven't like you know experienced someone close to you having an eating disorder you are probably a bit at sea knowing what to do mm-hmm. so I think it's such a good point that actually it's helpful to kind of communicate what you do need and what is supportive mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and sometimes people that are the ones struggling with bulimia they can then put too much pressure on their partners to hold them accountable and then that's not it's not helpful either you need to have a, a relationship that works for both of you guys yeah no very very true and I think the other point I wanted to pick up on about your recovery as well is that the thing about kind of giving up weight loss or the pursuit of weight loss <laughs> is such an interesting one isn't it because I guess like for you and I now looking back on that and you talking about that it seems such an obvious thing but you know mm-hmm. when you're in the depths of it and it feels like often the solution doesn't it you know if you're having these binges and purging and everything it feels like weight loss restriction that's the thing that you should be doing somehow to rectify the whole situation yeah well it feels like especially when I was so out of control with food I'm like if I could just find something that tells me how to correctly eat then the problem will be solved the problem is the fact that I'm binging all the time and consuming food and treating food like a junkie it would be so nice if I could figure out the magic secret to eat food like a normal human being and lose weight along the way and weight loss kind of coincided with that so it to my mind at the time when you're in that it makes sense but mm. it doesn't make any sense now looking back on it it's like yeah that was a really obvious thing but you know the alternative a lot of people think to giving up weight loss i put it on the shelf for a while was that you're going to just completely fall off all your wagons and never pick up fitness or health again and that's also what i thought in the back of my mind is like if well, if i give it up then i give it up forever and that means i give up my health my fitness everything and that's not the case at all mm. It's such a great point, actually, isn't it? Because I think, you know, I could just think of several of my clients as well that are really getting that all or nothing thinking. So, yeah, like almost terrified of giving up the pursuit of kind of perfect eating because it feels like the only alternative, yeah, is like kind of chaos, just being completely out of control, gaining weight mm-hmm. uncontrollably, you know, just this, you know, just feels like just such a terrifying place. And I think, such a great point in a way like you know there is a kind of middle ground isn't there you know you don't have to completely chuck the baby out with the bathwater. you know you can still <laughs> enjoy fitness and you could still you know enjoy you know having a healthy relationship with food putting good stuff in your body you know it doesn't have to be does it one extreme or the other yeah absolutely I you know, I had to, it was important for me to make mistakes with food in the beginning too, to figure out how to eat normally again. So it was really important phase to kind of feel a little bit out of control, but then it quickly came back and tenfold. And there is a middle ground after I recovered, which basically I think, you know, it's kind of hard to frame because I stopped binging and purging. Once I figured out that if it was for me, the habit analogy worked really well. So once I figured that out, I was able to stop binging and purging really quickly, like within a month. But before that, I had done so much work on my mindset and changing my life and stuff like that. So that all combined. But then after I stopped binging and purging, I still was kind of chaotic with food. And so then I really just like, I was like, okay, we are, we are going to drop weight loss for a little bit. And we're just going to focus on trying to eat like a normal human being. And that was like one of the scariest things I think I ever did because I was really worried about of everything. But it actually turned out to be a, a really wonderful time. And I've so much clients with food. And I realized, 
I don't want to eat like three things at night because I feel terrible. So it, it turned out to be a really good learning experience for me. Yeah, no, that's so great to hear. And Jacqueline, can you just share as well just a little bit more about, like you said, like when you kind of viewed the bulimia as a kind of habit as well, and then kind of worked on changing it as a habit. Like, can you just share with the listeners like a couple of tips that are kind of helpful in kind of breaking habits? Yeah. When you look at bulimia as a habit, like the, the binging and purging in particular is that habit. I think a lot of us are comprised of habits. It's really just, you have this loop going on in your brain where there's some sort of trigger that happens. Sometimes it's like malnutrition. Like at first when I started binging, it happened on accident and I was so hungry. And then I, I then the trigger to cue me that food. And once I started eating that food, I realized it was actually really rewarding and really enjoyable. And then a loop started to be formed of, oh, we're hungry. Let's get food. Eventually, I started binging just because I was stressed. That was another trigger that was happening for me. And I was like, okay, stress, let's go for food, that sort of stuff. And then sometimes it just became, I'm bored. There's any sort of emotion I was feeling, any type of free time I had, whatever. I was like, let's just binge. I just had random urges to binge and I couldn't figure it out because it was so weird. I'm like, it's the middle of the day. Why do I want to binge? But I realized it's just what I had trained my brain to do. There's like this primal brain in me that's like, we get food, we feel better, you feel rewarded, therefore let's do it. This is just our activity. And I can't make it mean that there are so many things about me that was broken, that I was just, you know, basically destitute to do this for the rest of my life. Mm. But really what I had to do is interrupt that habit loop. And this is what I also teach people is that basically what helped me was there's a point before you go on to autopilot, because when you're in a habit loop, kind of like when you're driving your car and you forget your turn, but you don't crash in anyone, it's because you're still driving, but your brain's on autopilot. So you're just kind of doing the motions. When you are going into that binging and purging loop, you're kind of going into autopilot. Mm. And so what I had to do was I had to become aware first of when I was binging and purging, what was happening during this time, why on earth was I binging and purging? And then I had to catch myself before going to autopilot. So for me, I would go into autopilot the second that I decided we're going to the grocery store or when I was in the grocery store or when I was standing in front of the fridge, then it was too hard to go back. Or when I started to eat food, then I was on autopilot. There was no going back. Of course, you can stop anytime you like, but it felt too difficult to stop when I was already going through that automatic habit loop. Yeah. And then over time, when I started to like catch myself, I was like, okay, how can we stop that autopilot, I had a really insightful coaching session with a coach. Her name is Janet Archer mm-hmm. and bless her soul because she didn't, she didn't struggle with bulimia at all. But I brought this to a coaching call because I was just, I was like, I need to stop this binging and purging thing. And I was like, I know this is a habit and I, I know I don't want to do it anymore, but I keep on doing it. And she was like, have you tried pausing? <laughs> and I laughed because I was like, no, I guess I haven't. That sounds ridiculous. But she was like, Pausing is not a time to distract yourself. It's a time to just make a decision. It's Mm. a time you can just stop and decide whether you want to do it or not. Mm. And basically what I did with the habit loop is I had gotten really good at like, okay, this is when I binge. This is what happens. It's typically on my way home from work. And so on my way home from work, I would stop and pause when I noticed myself going down that road. And I would sit and think like, do I actually want to do this? And also I would feel whatever emotion was going on. So instead of like running and avoiding it, which is what binging was for me, it was an emotional like coping mechanism. Mm. I would just kind of sit with what was going on instead. 
Mm-hmm. And then I would, it would give me space to actually slow things down, basically stops the momentum. Yeah. And then I was able to actually make a clear decision. Cause when you try to make a clear decision, when you're running around, it's really hard, but when you actually just stop everything, you're able mm-hmm. to clearly see what's going on. And mm-hmm. that allowed me to stop my habit loop. And then over time, the urges went away and I was actually able to just, sometimes they still come up actually, to be honest, but I, they're just sound kind of like neurological junk at this point. They're just like weird passing thoughts. But mm-hmm. <laughs> at yeah. first they would just kind of come up and then I was able to pause, stop, get through them. Now, the only thing I want to say is that I had done a lot of work emotionally before this. So it was a lot easier for me to let go of binging. So sometimes yeah. when I work with clients, it's really hard for them to pause it because they still really don't necessarily want to let go of bulimia and they have a lot of other stuff going on. But that's how mm. I stopped the actual like of it. And that's what I would suggest someone try. Mm, sure. And it's such valuable tips. I really appreciate you sharing those. So Jacqueline, where can people find you if they would like to get in touch with you about coaching or listen to your podcast? You know, yeah, where do people find you, please? Yeah, my podcast is just Binge Breakers, Bulimia Recovery. You can find it on most major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and YouTube. And my website is just bingebreakers.com. And my Instagram, I think, is bingebreakers underscore bulimia. I'm actually not sure what my Instagram is, but you could just type in binge breakers and I'm sure that you'll find it. It's all the same thing. So that's where people can find me. Okay. No, brilliant. Well, I'll make sure we put all the details in the show notes. That's the great. Well, Jacqueline, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And I really appreciate your openness and vulnerability in sharing your story and for sharing, you know, your journey to and your sort of healing with food. It's really been so encouraging and inspirational to hear. Thank you. I really appreciate you giving me the time to talk about it. And I hope that it resonates. I think just talking about these things, it's healing for me to talk about it. And it's always nice to actually have a conversation with someone who has been there themselves. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Jacqueline's details in the show notes. So if you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support in your relationship with food, do go to theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. Also, just to be aware, if you're listening and you are a therapist, nutritionist or counsellor and you're looking for further training in eating disorders, I'm going to be running some training courses in September and October. So if you go to my website, theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk, you can find more info about all of that. If you want to join the book club, you can sign up in the show notes. The link is below. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you would follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.